Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Swalcox. In this week's edition of Insight, there's pressure on the government for a pool Ian Thorpe will be scared of, but not everyone is diving in. We trawl the research for information about the Actuaries Institute's safety nets. And in a shock to just about no one in the industry, politicians are already complaining about how those evil insurers won't pay flood claims for people who own open-top submarines, or something like that. Hello, everyone. On our panel today are Chairman Terry McMullen, Managing Editor John Deeks, and Deputy Editor Wendy Pugh. Hello, Terry. Good morning. Are you in the market for an open-top submarine? <laughs> it's not a bad description of some parts of Australia, is it? <laughs> Hello, Wendy. Uh, good morning, Andrew. Have you ever bought something only to regret it later? Well, yeah, plenty of things, I think. They're mainly small things like some, you know, item of clothing or something that, you know, was a bit of a bad choice. <laughs> all right. All right. And hello, John. Hi. So, John, you mentioned this last week, but there appears now to be a serious push to extend the cyclone reinsurance pool and make it a flood reinsurance pool. Will this actually happen? Well, a lot of people want it to happen. We could see this coming, as, as you said. I mean, it's what a coincidence that just as we've got a bill going through Parliament for a reinsurance pool, this uh, catastrophic flood event takes place. And, and, and people just couldn't help but notice that, that the government's flagship policy would do absolutely nothing in this circumstance. So a lot of people do want the cyclone reinsurance pool to be extended into a, a flood reinsurance pool, local mayors in flooded areas for one, but also the Greens and Labour have come out supporting this idea. And lots of different academics have written about it too. The trouble is it might not be that easy. The government is yet to clarify its stance and many believe it will be reluctant to delay the cyclone pool which it expects to be a vote winner in the North. And it's not just a case of tweaking the current scheme. Extending it to flood would be a big job. It would require a complete redesign, and there's no way it could feasibly be ready by July. And don't forget, most of the insurance industry is against it. They were talked into backing the cyclone pool, but a flood pool is still a step too far. Yeah, so why does the Insurance Council support the cyclone pool, but not the flood pool? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and when you hear how much the residents of Lismore are expected to pay for flood cover, it's hard to argue there isn't a, a market failure for them. I suppose cyclone is a massive risk where there are limited resilience measures that can be taken, whereas insurers still believe there's a lot that could be done to mitigate the threat of flood in many communities across Australia. They've called for serious spending on mitigation over the years, and they, they, they don't think it's ever happened, not to the level that they want to see. So for now, the ICA says the private market is the better option because it sends a risk signal. And what it means by that is that the high premiums prove to everyone that living or building next to a river isn't sensible. And over time, the hope is that the risk would come down as people are attracted to live in, in safer areas. Insurers would see a pool as effectively subsidising people to live on floodplains. Uh, and that's not a good, good way forward. As Suncorp CEO Steve Johnston said, all you'd be doing is passing the buck from insurers to the government and the problem wouldn't be solved. This is, of course, all very good in theory, but doesn't do much to help the, the poor people who are stuck with homes in Lismore 
and facing a vicious cycle of ever-rising premiums. If we do it for flood, Terry, maybe we should do it for fire as well. I mean, is this a good idea or are people getting carried away? Well, I think everybody's looking for solutions to the, the rising cost of insurance against catastrophes, and those catastrophes are growing both in variety and in intensity. When you look at the Northern Australia cyclone pool scheme, it, it seems to offer new hope, but everyone I speak to suspects the government's modelling for that ends up with substantially lower premiums is quite possibly dodgy. No one has seen the modelling yet, and I bet they won't until after May 21. National disaster pools can work and deal with a variety of different kinds of, of disasters. The French and Spanish national reinsurance pools are a pretty good example. But in those cases, government support is based on solid economics, not what looks suspiciously at present like political expediency. So until we see the details of the Northern Australia scheme, we won't be able to figure out if the pool concept being championed by the federal government could be extended to other areas where, where premiums are under pressure. Terry, do you think it would be better to spend that money on mitigation and uh, adaption rather than um, a pool? Well, the you know, under the, the this sort of scheme, um, I mean, really, the government is is just sitting there hoping that it won't have to pay out any money at all. All it's doing is providing an additional level of cover. And it, it depends on how large that level of cover is as to whether it's going to be successful. So, you know, look, the, the, there are lots and lots of questions about it, but very few answers at present. Well, John, our analysis considers some other possibilities, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. And relocating communities is one of those. We've talked about it before in insurance news, and it has happened in the US. You know, the theory being, well, what's the point in just keep rebuilding the same houses over and over again? If they're going to keep getting destroyed, shouldn't we up sticks and, and, and relocate the community up the hill or, or something like that? It, it seems like it it's too much in terms of cost, but... It is something that the Insurance Council wants governments to consider, and some sources within the industry think that a limited buyback program is likely to come into play at some point. The other issues the analysis looks at are, of course, the mitigation measures and land use planning that the ICA has been on about for years. We are seeing politicians getting more on board with this, but it seems like they all want to blame each other for not having spent the money previously. And, of course, the other thing to consider is the ultimate cause of the problem, or at least part of the cause of the problem, which is carbon emissions. You know, we can only adapt and mitigate so much if, if things keep getting worse from a climate perspective. And some believe it's a bit odd that the industry doesn't shout more about this. The ICA's election platform, for example, had about a dozen demands for the government and not one of them talked about emissions. So there we go. <laughs> Well, let's not deny any considerations about that. But Terry, can we really move whole communities? I mean, that seems drastic. Yeah, it's great to hear this this debate being had. And yeah, it does seem extreme, but really it's just the ultimate form of mitigation. And as John says, it's it's been done before. It's been done in Australia, usually for a town to make way for a dam. But in the US, it, it certainly happened several times. As John says, well, what's the point of continually rebuilding houses on a floodplain as we see all over Australia? Climate change is bringing us bigger and more 
regular extreme fire, flood and cyclone events, which will over time affect the affordability of insurance. So we either make towns more resilient through tougher and much more expensive building standards and things like higher levies, which we would just have to keep making bigger and bigger as the problem gets bigger and bigger, which means, you know, really we can move towns to lower risk locations probably in overall for a lot less money. Lismore's a good example. The council built its chambers in the hills out of town, but most of its 43,000 or so residents chose to stay where they are. I do wonder if even a town of that size can continue to be inhabitable and insurable or whether it just might be cheaper in the long run to pick the whole damn place up and move it. Well, Wendy, the Actuaries Institute has something to say about safety nets, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, they put out a paper on big data and the digital economy, and and in that it talks about this whole changed pricing of risk that's possible due to the really detailed data that's available, you know, right down to the address level. You know, so while the insurance industry is going down that track and, and pricing more on that granularity of risk, you know, there are going to be some people who are caught out by that and who can no longer get insurance at a decent price. And, and the issues might be, you know, well out of their control and not something they can simply fix. So um, the Actuaries Institute paper says, you know, safety nets for vulnerable members of society uh, should be considered. You know, and this is in this context that we're seeing as the issue plays out with the, um, you know, discussion about the reinsurance pool and the flooding. And moving on, what's the latest on the flood catastrophe, John? And what's this about penny-pinching insurers? So we're up to 135,697 claims now, which is which is a lot. The Insurance Council estimates that insured loss would total more than $2 billion as it stands now. I'd say we've got a fair way to go. The large commercial claims probably haven't come in yet. And some people are saying the final loss could hit $3 billion, which would put it right up there amongst Australia's worst natural disasters on record. As you say, Scott Morrison was asked uh, on Friday what he would what he would do about insurance companies who are trying to penny pinch in the months to come. Perhaps the journalist who asked that question hadn't seen the announcements about, uh, you know, a million dollars from Suncorp, a million dollars from NRMA to to help communities. I don't know, but to be fair to Mr. Morrison, he 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 didn't he didn't uh, have a go at insurers. He did say he'd be keeping an eye on them, but his main point was that the councils and state governments and the federal government all need to come together to to work on these resilience measures that the insurance companies want to see. We've got to get that done, he says. And if they do that, then the insurance companies will be in a better place to insure people. There could well be some complications with claims. We've spoken regularly about shortages of materials and labour, but insurers haven't done anything wrong yet, have they, Terry? Why are they always getting whacked? Because they always do get whacked. These days, insurers get teams out to the disaster areas very quickly, but it's never going to be quick enough for claimants who are, who are both emotionally and physically exhausted. And those people are really good fodder for television. They're pretty much lost in the moment. But the thing that concerns me is about politicians of all stripes and occasionally TV journalists seem to have it in their DNA to undermine confidence in the insurance industry's abilities instead of pointing out the, the size of the challenge. They'll be gone in two days anyway, and the insurance teams won't. Well, underinsurance is an issue even I'm familiar with, but it's what we don't know 
that's worrying APRA. What has the Prudential regulator been saying, Wendy? Well, the issue came up quite a bit during the Senate committee hearing into the uh, pool legislation, and they talked a bit about how to come to grips with the underinsurance problems generally. And one of the panel members pointed out that, you know, the reason it is such a big problem is because it's kind of crept up on people and they don't, the data's not there showing what's going on. And uh, APRA's Helen Rowell said there are pockets of data, but it's not comprehensive. So there's not, you know, the information to um, to develop a, um, a good fact base to better understand what the state of play is with this. And that that is something that they are having a look at. Well, this seems sensible, Terry. We can't fix the problem until we know the size of the problem. I totally agree, Andrew. There's nothing very much we can do about it until we, we do get all the data together. APRA has every reason to be concerned about issues like affordability and underinsurance. And yeah, we do need solid data to be able to move forward. Well, finally, one of the consumer groups is worried about definitions in insurance contracts. Wendy, assume I have no idea what this question is about whatsoever. Can you explain this to me? Well, the the trouble is, I guess, uh, in trying to compare policies, different insurers have different ways of defining things. So you might think you're covered by a storm in one policy, and then the way they define it might be different with a different insurer. And then along with that, there's all the exclusions and uh, limitations on cover. And that can vary also between the different insurers. So, you know, it makes it very difficult to understand, to compare policies in the first case. And you also find that consumers are getting tripped up by the exclusions and limitations in particular. So this is an issue that the Financial Rights Legal Centre has been calling for more standardisation for ages, particularly in the wake of uh, work that was done on standardising the definition of flood after the Brisbane disaster a decade ago. But a report they've just commissioned, you know, really focuses on broadening out that, doing more standardisation of more terms and looking at those exclusions. And it particularly highlights, for example, exclusions for um, normal uh, wear and tear and, 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 you know, how people really struggle to understand what that actually means and how it can differ from, you know, insurer to insurer. So, John, does this mean that we really should just have one insurance policy? Yeah, I, I think what you're saying there is, is really how the insurers would respond. They might say, well, uh, this is all well and good, but how are we supposed to compete if we're all... Uh, if all our policies have to be exactly the same. So you can understand it from a consumer perspective. The temptation is to think, um, oh, I can't I can't uh, read that 300-page document. So I'm sure they're all the same anyway. I'll just go with this one. Well, the trouble is they're not all the same, as we've seen. Policies differ, wordings differ, and you could be caught out at claim time if you haven't done the research. So it is a fair point from, from the consumer groups, However, there is a point from the industry too, which is, well, you know, we, we like to offer things differently to compete in the market. Otherwise, as you say, what, what's the point? There may be some middle ground here. I think it's been said before that you could have a base level of cover that is all the same, that is standard. So people know that they're covered for the essentials, but that there might be extras on top of that where maybe there's sort of premium levels of policy where you get extra bits and pieces. It's not an easy one to crack. I mean, the the industry knows that there's an issue with consumers understanding their policies. And it's I guess it's good just to be having the debate. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, John Deeks, Terry McMullen and Wendy Pugh. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. 
If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.